something much more shaking, something much more, we could say, traumatic than something like a jet engine. Here we see the God of all the earth, the God of all creation. And as we look at this chapter, it's important to remember that the entire rest of the book of Isaiah flows out in many ways of chapter 6. If we were to read through the book of Isaiah, we would perhaps be surprised at how many of the verses we recognize right off the bat. In fact, Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament over 600 different times. Sometimes commentators refer to it as the fifth gospel because this book so clearly, in many different places, points ahead to the coming Christ. It gives comfort. But we see here in Isaiah also a message of judgment and condemnation of wrath falling upon God's people for their disobedience. As Isaiah is ministering here, in Isaiah 6 especially, Assyria is rising as a power on the world scene. And in fact, about 18 years after Isaiah begins his ministry, the northern kingdom of Israel is wiped off the map by the Assyrians. Isaiah is prophesying in a time where God's judgment is coming and coming soon. Yet we can see that there's still hope because of God's unexpected grace. And we'll see three things this morning in our passage. We'll see, first of all, the holiness of God. Secondly, the hopelessness of Isaiah. And finally, the heaviness of the message. The holiness of God, the hopelessness of Isaiah, and the heaviness of the message. And we see the holiness of God right at the beginning of our text here in verses 1 through 4. And we are told in verse 1 that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now that would have been very clear to the original audience, to the ancient Israelites, the ancient residents of Judah who would have heard that. But we can ask at this point, what does this mean? Why is this an important detail? Who was King Uzziah? Well, King Uzziah was a king in the southern kingdom of Judah for 52 years. He had a very long reign. If we think of of the length of David's reign as 40 years, Uzziah reigned for 52. And at the beginning of his reign, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But as he grew older, as he became more used to the position of power that he was in, he became quite proud. And as is often the case in the Old Testament, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And Uzziah's decline shows us the decline of the people of God as a whole. Until we come to what happened in the temple. In 2 Chronicles 26, we read that King Uzziah became so proud that he himself forced his way into the temple and he intended to burn incense on the altar. He had no right to do this, but he took it upon himself, and the priests opposed him. They stood in his way, and God cursed him. Because of what he did, because he tried to force his way into God's presence without being called, he was cursed with leprosy. And the leprosy became visible on a very specific place. He had leprosy on his forehead which is very, very significant. We read in places like Exodus 28 that as the priests 
are ministering before the Lord, they are to have golden plates on the turban of their heads that are to cover their foreheads. And on this golden plate, it's supposed to say, holy to the Lord. So think about this picture. Here are these priests opposing Uzziah, and on their forehead is the golden plate, holy to the Lord, and then here's King Uzziah cursed with leprosy where the plate would be. Some foreheads who say, God's, God's special possession, called into this service. And one forehead that says, cursed. And we see that Uzziah's leprosy lasted the rest of his life. He was rushed out of the temple because he cannot be unclean and impure and be in God's presence without even further condemnation falling. And so Uzziah, as he left his place for the rest of his life and went among the people that he ruled, would be followed by a declaration. Wherever he went, the people would hear, unclean. Uzziah was unclean. Uzziah was cursed. And it was this year that the unclean king Uzziah died that God saw the Lord sitting on his throne high and exalted. He says in verse 5, My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And so as the earthly king is leaving the scene, Isaiah saw, sees the great king of kings. And now we can ask at this point, how can Isaiah see God? And boys and girls, you've probably heard different people say at different times, you've probably read in the Bible that no one can see God and live. So how can this chapter begin with this idea that Isaiah saw God? Well, sometimes we see in the Bible that God gives his people just a small glimpse of himself. That he doesn't show them himself as he truly is, but he shows them himself in a way that they can understand and they can see. We think perhaps of Moses, who had to be hidden in the cleft of the rock, and God covered him as he just saw the back part of God's glory pass by. And this was not the fullness of of his glory. If he were to make his full glory visible, no creature could survive it. And look at just what a fraction of God's glory and his holiness did to Isaiah, where it left him. Isaiah tells us about the throne of God, that it's high and lifted up. He tells us that the train of his robe filled the temple. He tells us that his servants, the, seraph- the seraphim, each had six wings. And with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And commentators notice that Isaiah describes all these things, all these details, but words fail him when he attempts to describe the Lord he sees. That all these grand, wonderful things that he sees can be described, but God cannot. And we see that this is a now curtainless temple where Isaiah sees God. That phrase at the end of verse 1 is very important. The train of his robe filled the temple. This tells us where Isaiah saw God. He saw him in the temple. He was given this vision of what's truly happening in the temple. The temple was a place where God dwelt in the midst of his people, where they would be separated from him by curtains. And the reason is because this God was holy, 
holy, holy, and they were sinful. And there had to be dividers, there had to be separators between the people and their God. But Isaiah here in this vision is brought directly into God's throne room. He's brought directly into the holy of holies. What Isaiah sees here in this vision is the temple without its curtain. And I don't mean necessarily just the physical curtain. This is the curtain between the physical and the spiritual, between what the priest would see, the high priest, as he entered into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, and what was really going on in this space. Instead of seeing the Ark of the Covenant sitting there, Isaiah sees the Lord exalted, high, and sitting on his throne. This is where God dwelt, and this God is holy. And we see the exaltation of God, especially that the seraphim, these powerful angelic beings, are presented with these three pairs of wings. And the first pair is the pair that we would think of as the function of wings, the wings that fly. But we also see that they have a pair of wings to cover their feet because they are in the holiest of holy space, and a pair of wings to cover their face. And these powerful, fiery spirits, these holy ones, these ones who have never once sinned, cannot even look upon their Lord in his holiness. This is what Isaiah sees. And as they remain there, as these seraphim are there in God's temple, in his throne room, ready to do their God's bidding, they call out to each other and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we read that the foundations of the threshold shook and the house was filled with smoke. And so this temple, this magnificent stone building, was shaking, and the king himself had not even yet uttered a word. Only his servants had spoken. Here he was, high and lifted up as the true king of kings. And this is quite a contrast to Uzziah, who tried to exalt and lift himself up, only to be brought back down to the earth in uncleanness. God doesn't have to throw his weight around to be seen as glorious and exalted. He just is, truly. There he sat in glory and splendor that is indescribable. And if we were to use a word to describe what Isaiah would have experienced at this point, perhaps the best one we could come up with is traumatic. And this is the kind of vision that shakes someone to their very core. And we see this in how Isaiah responds to this. Isaiah was in the special presence of his creator, the one who spoke the universe into existence and the one who is holy, holy, holy. He had been brought into his presence. And as we think about it, this should inform our worship as well. Because as we're called into God's presence this morning, we are called into the presence of this very God. And we have nothing to bring him that he needs that he does not already have. And we are not called in, we can see, because of our holiness, because this God is holy, holy, holy. That as we meet and receive from this God that Isaiah saw as high and lifted up, if we were left on our own, we would only be able to shake and pronounce woes upon ourselves as Isaiah did. 
Yeah, what happened even this morning? After the call to worship, after this holy, holy, holy God called us to gather together and to worship Him, He also greeted us. And a few words were used, that those who are in Christ have grace and peace. And so we can enter into the presence of this holy, holy, holy God with confidence. But as we see the message of Isaiah, we see that it's a message for people who disregard the holiness of this God. For the people of Israel who thought that they were okay. That yes, perhaps they didn't keep the law completely, but they did pretty well, and God's temple was in their midst after all. But we see here the hopelessness of Isaiah, our second point this morning in verses 5 through 7. We see that the people of Israel had no real clue who this God was who was in their midst, who they worshipped, who was their great king of kings. And we see that Isaiah was called as a prophet to God. And we can ask at this point, what did a prophet do? What purpose did he serve? Well, essentially, to boil it down to make it very, very simple, a prophet was someone sent by God to be his covenant lawyer. Basically, Isaiah was sent to sue the people of God on behalf of their Lord. That they had promised all these things we will do when they are at the foot of Mount Sinai, and all these things they had not done. And so God begins to send prophets to them. And at first the prophets are saying, repent, and the blessings will come. Fail to repent, and the curses will come. Eventually it gets to the point where the prophets just say it's too late. Judgment is on its way that you will be vomited out of the land as the Canaanites before you were vomited out of the land because you have desecrated it. And the reason they have desecrated it is because this holy, holy, holy God dwelt in their midst. And he could not abide sin. But as the prophets would bring this message of condemnation, they would also bring a message of blessing alongside it, very unexpectedly, to show God's grace. And so they would bring two words to the people. They were words of woe, W-O-E, as it's translated here in our passage this morning. It's a message of condemnation. Woe is basically cursed are. But there was a flip side of this. The words blessed are. And so as we're reading through the prophets, we have to understand what word are they bringing. Are they bringing a word of condemnation and curse and wrath or a word of blessing and grace. And what we see here, as Isaiah sees the holiness, the thrice holy God exalted and sitting on his throne, is that Isaiah pronounces a curse on himself. The one who was called by God to be his covenant lawyer, to bring the message of curse and the message of blessing to his people, sees this God who calls him, understands the holiness of this God in his own sinfulness, and the only rational, logical result is that he curses himself. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. In the words of R.C. Sproul, for the first time in Isaiah's life, he understands who God is. 
And the very second that Isaiah understood who God was, for the first time in his life, he understood who Isaiah was. He realizes more than he ever has. There's nothing within him to cause him to bless himself. That if he looks at himself, all that he can come up with is woe, curse, wrath, judgment, and condemnation. He pronounces himself unclean like leprous King Uzziah. And we can ask, what was unclean? Well, he makes it very clear that it's his mouth. Which makes a lot of sense if we think about it. How could he be a prophet, the one who proclaimed God's message to his people, if his own lips were unclean and corrupt? How could this possibly be? In his self-condemnation, he's also despairing about his calling. And we see here that Isaiah didn't seek to cover himself. He didn't try to run out and wash himself. He didn't make promises or excuses or try to bargain with God. Once he saw God in his holiness, he knew that he himself was helpless. And that he himself was condemned. He didn't try to compare himself to others, which is what we tend to do, isn't it? Perhaps we have a tendency to think, well, sure, I failed here and there. I'm not perfect, but... You should see that guy down the street or the girl that I went to school with. And the problem, of course, is that the guy down the street and the girl we went to school with are not the standards. And that really we're no better than they are. Isaiah saw God. He knew God's holy, perfect law. And he knew that he had broken it all the days of his life. And this was never more clear to him than when he saw the Lord on his throne, high and exalted. And any comfort that he might have had by comparing himself to others was knocked away from him. The great holiness of God was the great equalizer for Isaiah. But through the smoke, Isaiah saw a seraph coming to him with the burning coal. As he's there at the end of his rope, as he is in the depths, as we sang about in Psalm 30, to a degree that few people have ever experienced, as he truly sees where he is, something happens, something quite unexpected. We see God's response to his cry. And the seraphim are God's servants. They only act at his commands. And so this means that this seraph was commanded by God to do what he's about to do. He brings this flaming, fiery coal to Isaiah's lips, and he touches it against them. And we can ask, well, why a coal? Well, to understand this, we need to listen to the words of Leviticus 16 and what the temple and tabernacle before it were meant to do. On the Day of Atonement, when the high priest was to cover the sins of the people with a sacrifice, we read these words. Aaron shall present the bowl as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. As we read this section in Leviticus 16, we recognize there are a lot of parallels here. We see a lot of similar things in Isaiah 6. We see that these coals that the seraph takes 
and touches to Isaiah's lips were taken into the Holy of Holies so that he was avoiding seeing God, so that the smoke would obscure the sight of the Lord. The smoke we see in Isaiah 6-4 is from this altar. We see right from the beginning, even as Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God and the smoke begins to rise, that God's grace is working. Right from the beginning, Isaiah is kept from being destroyed. He is preserved by God. This was the very same altar that the coals came from that Uzziah tried to force his way into to burn incense to the Lord. He was prevented by the priests and cursed with leprosy. But what became an altar of condemnation for Uzziah became an altar of salvation for Isaiah. We see here in verse 7, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And we see something very clear as we think about this. The one who tried to force himself into God's presence to take the blessing for himself was cursed. The one who was called into God's presence, who recognized his sinfulness and cried out in despair, was blessed. Ultimately, this points to what Christ would do as the high priest and our perfect eternal sacrifice. We see here in Isaiah 6 that God provided what Isaiah needed and proclaimed forgiveness and grace to him when he deserved the exact opposite. And God also provides what we need and proclaims the gospel of his Son to us. To us who would be in the same position as Isaiah without the grace of God. But grace and forgiveness means very little unless we can understand who God is, that he is holy, and that we are not as Isaiah truly realized on that day. We realize that God does not love us and serve us because we ourselves are lovely. My mom has a a dog, he's not necessarily a puppy anymore, who tries to misbehave, and the problem is he knows that he's cute, which means he gets away with things. And we tend to think, perhaps, that that's what we are. That, yeah, we misbehave. We do things in the house that we're not supposed to do. We rip up things. We steal things. We hide things. But we're cute. And so, of course, God is going to love us. Of course, God's going to forgive us because that's his job. And look how cute we are. But that's not at all the picture that the Bible paints for us. We see here the weight and the urgency of our salvation because we see the holiness of God. But we also see that a sinner saved by grace can stand in the presence of this holy God and live. We see that salvation doesn't come from men forcing their way through the curtain like Uzziah. Instead, it comes from within the curtain and works its way out from God. God saves us through Christ's atonement. We do not save ourselves. And this leads us to our final point this morning, the heaviness of the message in verses 8 through 13. So we see that Isaiah is now able to be brought close to God. That he first saw the Lord from a distance through a cloud of smoke, but now Isaiah can stand in his presence and speak to him. He's brought near. 
And God would ordinarily call a prophet by bringing him into his inner court and giving him the message just like an ancient king would bring his messenger into his inner court, into the very throne room of his palace and give him the message to go and take to the people. We see here that Isaiah is being confirmed as a prophet. He's being sent out. We see here what perhaps the, the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism were thinking about when they said that the Christian life is a life of guilt and grace and gratitude. That Isaiah came face to face with his guilt when he saw the Holy Lord sitting on his throne in the temple. That he received shocking and unlooked for grace from God himself. And he responds in the only way that he could have. He served God in gratitude. He answered the call, Here am I, send me. And if we are to recognize our own guilt and the surprising, shocking grace shown to us in Christ, how can we respond in any other way but to respond in gratitude as we're called into the presence of this holy God? And we have confidence because our sins are atoned for, our iniquity is taken away. We can respond in confidence and in gratitude to the grace, the wonderful, shocking, surprising grace that has been shown to us. And as we see what message Isaiah is supposed to bring to the people now as he's going out in gratitude, we know right away in verses 9 through 10 that there will be no positive response to the prophet's message. At the beginning of Isaiah's ministry, he already knew the end, judgment and exile. God's people as a whole would continue to reject the word of their holy, holy, holy Lord. And verses 11 through 13 tell us the rest of redemptive history. That cities will lie waste without inhabitants. That all these judgments will come to the people. I read in verse 13, And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And so in the midst of this condemnation from the holy, holy, holy God, we see that wrath and judgment is not God's final word. Now many people may not realize what's really happening here. Isaiah saw God, we know that. God commanded the seraph to make atonement for Isaiah by using the burning coal from the altar used on the Day of Atonement. We understand that. And in verse 13, God promised that although judgment was coming, he would leave a stump or a remnant through which the promised Messiah would come. But as we turn to the New Testament and see how this is interpreted by the inspired writers of Scripture, we turn to John 12, 41, and we see this apostle whom Jesus loved quoting a part of Isaiah 6, saying that the people did not believe in Jesus just as they did not hear the message of Isaiah. And then John says this, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. That's a reference to Jesus. So who did Isaiah see on that day in the temple? Who was high and exalted, unable to be described in his glory and majesty? Who was holy, holy, holy. John seems to make the point that it was God the Son. 
God the Son ordered the seraph to take the burning coal to Isaiah's lips, taking away his guilt and atoning for his sin. God the Son promised that although the forest of Israel would be cut down and burned, a stump would remain. And ultimately, he himself would one day take on flesh, live, die, and rise again to fully and finally take away the guilt of his people and atone for their sin. And because Christ became unclean for us, he did not deserve the woe pronounced upon him, just as we do not deserve the blessing pronounced upon us. That a great exchange has happened. And so as we consider this message of Isaiah 6, we can ask ourselves some questions. We can ask ourselves whether or not we assume that perhaps because we've been born and raised in a Christian home, and we grew up perhaps going to a Reformed or Presbyterian church that God owes us something. And as we see that God presented in Isaiah 6, the answer is a very hearty no. But do we also realize that this holy, holy, holy God has acted for us, for our salvation? Do we realize that when we answer God's call, we gather together as his people and come into his special presence and worship him, we are gathering to answer the call and to come into the presence of this very God who is holy, holy, holy. And on the other hand, do we realize that we can do so without fear and with great comfort because of Christ's work for us? Isaiah 6 tells us that because God is holy and we are sinful, our only hope for acceptance and cleansing has to come from God himself from this holy, holy, holy one. And the good news is he has acted in Christ. And so flee to him. Throw yourself on his mercy. Don't try to force yourself in as King Uzziah did. Cry out to God as a sinner and know that he has promised to respond even as he did for Isaiah. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Truly you are our God, the King, the one who is high and exalted. Holy, holy, holy are you, O Lord. And we praise you, Father, for the redemption you have worked for us through Christ, even as we pray that your Holy Spirit would apply this word to our hearts and keep it in our minds this coming week. We pray all of this in Christ's thrice holy name. Amen.